Welcome back to the show. This is Sal and Quentin with The New Normal. We had a great conversation today with Mr. David Wilbur. He's got a really, really insightful book on the topic of feminism. I think there's going to be a lot of people who might be a little triggered and uh, we get into a fun little debate on that. Quentin, what did you think of that interview? That was awesome. I, I, I agreed with pretty much everything that he said on it, even though we had some fundamental disagreements on uh, philosophical issues. Um, I, I agree with his take, though, that yeah. uh, out of, you know, a, a naturalistic worldview or you could call it cultural Marxism or evolution or whatever, that women won't have any rights. They, they'll be stripped from them. Yeah, I think it made for a definite interesting interaction. I think you two had a really good interaction and it's going to lead to some some more uh, conversation. So we hope you enjoy this episode of The New Normal with our guest, David Wilbur. We are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. Welcome to the new normal, where we're talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Quentin. Each week, we dive into those various topics and bring you an inspiring person or message to navigate the world with a positive mindset in this new normal. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now, here we go. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is The New Normal. My name is Sal. And with me, as always, is my good friend, Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. Hey, guys. We got a really fascinating guest today. I have to say, there's, I'm going to find some sound effects for a siren, because here is your trigger warning, ladies. This, this is going to be a trigger warning for all the ladies out there. You've got three guys that are going to talk to you about feminism today. <laughs> Our guest today is David Wilbur. He is an author of multiple books, including his most recent book, Is God a Misogynist? Understanding the Bible's Difficult Passages Concerning Women. He's also a speaker and Bible teacher. David has spoken at churches, at conferences throughout the United States, and is currently serving on a teaching staff at 119 Ministries. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. And, and I think you're, you're going to have an, a very interesting perspective to uh, share with us about modern day feminism, third wave feminism, kind of all the waves of feminism. Talk to me a little bit about how your understanding of feminism deals with and, and what the approach is that uh, you have with talking about feminism. And then let us know about your book. Let us know what you've got going on. Great. So my, I got interested in this topic, and, and the reason I wrote the book uh, was because I, I had some friends who were former Christians, a couple of friends who are former Christians, who have abandoned their faith in Christianity and in the Bible, uh, specifically due to um, feminist 
criticisms and objections to the Bible. So that's, uh, you know, because I, I knew some people that were questioning and doubting the Bible, uh, that's what kind of led me down this path of exploring this topic. And uh, I'm, I'm a Christian apologist, so I focus a lot on defending Christianity and defending the Bible. So I wanted to zero in and focus in on specifically feminist criticisms of the Bible. And yeah, that's, that's how it happened. So that there's a lot of criticisms that you'll often hear from feminist authors and, and feminist critics who will say that um, religions like Christianity are the last cultural barrier to gender equality. That's something that the feminist author Karen Garst wrote. She's a feminist and an atheist. Uh, she's written a couple of books, one book where she has a compilation of different essays written by feminists who, who criticize Christianity. Um, she goes on to say that Christianity has historically participated in the subjugation and degradation of women, and uh, that you cannot believe that the Bible is inspired by God, if, if God even exists. There's no way that the Bible could be inspired by God because it was written by men who believed that women were their property. So th these are the types of claims that uh, she proposes in her books, the claims that she makes. Another feminist writer, Taslima Nasreen, she writes, quote, if one believes in women's rights, one first has to cast away one's religious identity. All religions are anti-women. No one can be pro-woman while supporting anti woman dogmas. Mm. So this is kind of the modern cultural narrative among feminist critics that you'll hear today. Uh, it's that bibli biblical Christianity is directly opposed to women. And so that's the narrative that some people that I knew have bought into, which led me to researching this topic, uh, because I believe that this narrative of, is false. I believe that Christianity is not directly opposed to women. In fact, I would take it a step further, and I would say that modern secular feminism is directly opposed to women. And that's what I argue in my book. Ooh, you want to start some fights. <laughs> so tell me what is, mm -hmm. if all of that can be kind of summarized as to the biggest argument, what is the biggest kind of, straw man argument that feminists have when it comes to speaking out against the Bible or any religion in, in, in this case, um, as you mentioned, all religions apparently are a subjugation of women. So what is the biggest claim that these feminists make against, I guess, the hierarchy of, of religion? Right. Uh, well, it's this perception that they have, and, and which is actually promoted by some segments of Christianity. It's promoted in other religions like Islam, but it is this idea that Christianity or religion in general, that it, that it does subjugate women. So there is that perception that's out there. And uh, unfortunately, um, since I'm a Christian and that's what I, uh, that's the perspective I'm coming from, that's, that's the specific religion that I'll defend, that I do defend. Um, 
unfortunately, a lot of Christians, segments of Christianity, have held uh, views that uh, women are uh, inferior to men in certain ways. They may not be, they may not overtly say that, but there is that, um, you know, there is sort of that teaching that's out there. So what I think a lot of, honestly, in my humble opinion, I think that a lot of these uh, feminist critics of Christianity, they're reacting to an unbiblical, distorted version of Christianity, an unbiblical, distorted mm. version of Christianity that does teach that women are inferior in certain ways. Um, and that's and so they're reacting to that rather than what the Bible actually teaches. Right. And so I'm not interested in defending an unbiblical religion. I'm interested in defending uh, biblical Christianity. What does the Bible actually teach? And I don't think that the Bible teaches that women are inferior to men. So isn't that where so many arguments stem from anyways, is not even looking at the source material, but, you know, John over here thinks that women are property. And so I'm going to argue against John's point, right? Because mm -hmm. he thinks the Bible says women are property. So I'm going to now go after John's character. I'm going to go after his argument as to why he's defending it but they're not even looking at the source material. How often are you coming right. into contact with authors or feminists that are trying to defend that position who themselves have not read the source material? And if they have read the source material, are they falling into the context trap? Oh, the vast majority uh, of people. Um, and and I, I would say this uh, generally of, uh, of a lot of critics of, of Christianity and the Bible is, um, I know that's a general statement, but just I'm talking about from my experience, there are a lot of very intelligent atheists out there who are well-versed in the scriptures and who can make compelling arguments. Uh, but I would say the majority in my experience and uh, the majority of feminist critics in my experience are just not familiar at all with what the Bible actually teaches. They're only familiar with what they've heard from other people. Uh, they are buying into a narrative that is just regurgitated uh, by feminist critics, um, who, again, I would, I would say are often reacting to a distorted version of Christianity. Um, so I would, um, I would say that it, it is the majority. There are some good uh, you know, feminist critics who are intelligent and who have good arguments. Um, so, but yeah, uh, I'm just repeating myself now, but yeah, I would say that in my experience, the majority is sort of uh, ignorant of a lot of uh, what the Bible actually teaches. So I imagine there's quite a few verses out there that you can draw from and, you know, talk about what are some of those key verses that you've encountered that feminists use to exploit that narrative to say, see, God uh -huh. says that if a woman is raped, she now becomes the property of this man. Right. Well, well, that one that you just uh, alluded to in Deuteronomy 22, that's a huge one. Uh, and that's I have a chapter devoted to that passage in my book uh, that I unpack. Um, and basically, the, what I conclude, based on what the passage actually says, is that uh, the Bible does not require a rape victim to marry her rapist. You know, the, the Bible does not, in fact, the Bible says that rape is a horrific act that's comparable to murder. Rapists are put to death. That's what the Bible teaches. There is a difficult passage in Deuteronomy 
which seems to say that a rape victim is, um, you know, the property of her rapist or she has to marry her rapist. Uh, but that's not what it teaches. Uh, it's not talking about rape in that passage. It's talking about um, a consensual encounter between a young couple. So what the Bible is actually teaching there is that when a young couple has consensual relations, uh, the man must take responsibility. You can't. It's just actually leave. about fornication, if I remember correctly. Right. Not not rape. It's actually about a young fornication. Yeah, you're 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 exactly right. It's a young couple, and so what what the Bible is actually teaching is that the man has to take responsibility. You can't just use and abuse a woman. If if you're going to be intimate with her, you have to take responsibility and, and care for her and and treat her with dignity and, and respect, not not just as an object. So that's the Bible's perspective, and and so the the uh, perspective of feminist critics are just there. It's an unbiblical perspective. It's not reflective of what the the text actually teaches. And then you also have verses that describe situations where a father can sell his daughter to another family and my understanding of that context is from the from the basis of equality where mm -hmm. someone who is in debt severely in debt in, in these biblical times again we're not talking about modern times this is written for an ancient people for an ancient understanding which we can mm -hmm. then apply but talk to me a little bit about that situation where a father can sell his daughter and how is that not uh, a pro-feminist argument. Are you talking about like the bride price? When, no, uh, so when, like, I believe there's there's passages where it talks about being able to sell the daughter for, for it's for that dowry. It's a but dowry. Also, yeah, that dowry that allows them to essentially take in the money and set that daughter up for that success. But feminists might only read that they're selling their daughter for a dowry. Right. Yeah, I would okay. say that's a bad interpretation. That that this is a marriage dowry, probably strictly. Right, uh, and and I would, uh, based on my reading, the uh, scholars conclude that that's better understood as like so. So in biblical language, you have phrases like bride price, um, where you know a. a, a a person who wants to marry a woman has to give a bride price for her to her father, right? And so a lot of critics will say, oh, well, women are just treated as property. They can be bought and sold as property. Well, scholars conclude that that is better translated as marriage present, a marriage present. And it could be compared perhaps in a small way in our modern culture of an engagement ring. So when a groom-to-be wanted to uh, Mary wants to marry a woman, uh, typically in our culture, he would give her an engagement ring. So um, in this context, a bride price uh, was about on average like uh, 10 months wages. And um, it was basically a, 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 you know, an ancient version of an engagement ring, which was given um, to, uh, you know, basically to show that this arrangement, that this covenant, it's not entered into flippantly. You know, we're entering into this arrangement. It's a, a serious, it's to demonstrate the serious intentions of the groom-to-be, that this is a, a serious and holy and lifelong matter, and, um, and we're not just jumping into this. So, um, it, in, 
and ironically, you know, um, in spite of the feminist criticisms in the ancient world, the bride price was a way to express the value of women and the seriousness of marriage and sex. So, um, you know, that is why, um, for example, uh, we, we talked about Deuteronomy earlier, uh, premarital sexual activity between a young couple. This is why when a young couple engaged in that, the man was required to pay the bride price, even if the young uh, woman's family refused to give her a marriage. Because the Bible says that uh, the Bible expresses this principle that having sex without first going through the process of marriage disrespected and it degraded women. And I believe that that truth is, is still true today. You know, we don't treat women like objects. We're not to look at women as, as if they're only good for their bodies. No, we, if we want to be intimate with a woman, we ought to want to cherish her as a partner. And we ought to want to um, have a life with her, build a life with her, and not just use her as a, an object. And so that's the kind of value that the Bible expresses, um, not this idea that women are just objects. When we, uh, I'm going to bring up fourth wave feminism, third wave and fourth wave feminism uh, in a little mm -hmm. bit when you're done. And we're going to go further into that because that's really important what you just said. Okay. Great. What are some of the other Bible passages that you've encountered that feminists use in, in these arguments that, you know, you're, you're able to work through and walk them through the, the context and the historical significance of some of these cultural mm -hmm. applications? Well, um, I can just go through the table of contents on my book here because uh, I, I address all of these. Um, so a big one is polygamy. Um, in the Bible, there are men who are described as godly men who had multiple wives. And so a lot of, a lot of feminist critics, a lot of women in general, ha have issues with that, understandably. And uh, what I argue in the book is that the Bible does not endorse polygamy. But in fact, the Bible uh, prohibits polygamy and uh, discourages polygamy. Um, you also have the test for adultery, um, you know, which is this uh, test in Numbers, Numbers chapter 5, which if a woman is suspected of adultery, uh, she has to be taken to the priest and she has to go through this ritual, which would determine whether or not she committed adultery. And so that is one that's often brought up. Um, and, and so I go through that in the book. There's the test of virginity, which if a, if a woman is suspected to have not been a virgin when she got married, there is a test that she can take to determine that uh, in Deuteronomy. I go through that, uh, the, the passages about rape, uh, a ton of passages that seem to entail that women are inferior to men in some way. You have passages in um, Paul's letters in the New Testament where it appears that he is saying that women are excluded from ministry. Uh, they're excluded from being able to hold positions of authority in the church and uh, excluded from being able to teach the, the scriptures. Um, so a lot of feminists will point to those as passages that show a uh, inequality between men and women. I uh, unpack those passages, and what I argue in the book is that the Bible doesn't uh, exclude women from those positions. 
Um, so there's a lot there. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that's pretty much that that's most of what the book focuses on is unpacking those difficult passages. And then I also make an argument for why biblical Christianity, not modern secular feminism is the answer to female oppression Mm. and, um, degradation of women, that there is a problem of female oppression and degradation of women in our culture even today. And the answer is not modern secular feminism. Modern secular feminism has failed women. Biblical Christianity is the answer to that. The the whole, you know, women not teaching or, or practicing in the church, I mean, that that's that's true to an extent. I mean, there it's not that they're completely excluded, but there are definitely um requirements and preconditions to them entering the temple or entering a chapel and, and, and preaching or to leading a church. Like it's not completely exclusionary to women, but they do have certain requirements of age, maturity, and they need to be a widow uh, in order to fulfill that, but they're not completely excluded, but it's generally seen that at that point in time, as a woman has become older um, she's lost her husband. She has assumed the role of head of a household. Therefore, she can now become head of a tribe and she can become a teacher. And you, you can have a matriarch emerge, especially since you, if you think about the Kohenim, the Kohenim or the Levites, their particular tribes as being head of worship in the ancient uh, Zadokite practicings, um, these people are seen as the leaders of this this group of people, right? So any woman that emerges as a matriarch from those particular houses is going to be seen as, as kind of a natural leader coming forth. Uh, and she's already taken over that role within her own house. So I just wanted to say that. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, I, I guess I, I should qualify what I said earlier. Um, the Bible does not exclude qualified women from ministry. Right. So just so as the, the same Bible, can be said for men. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, every yeah. man can just go and, and become a minister or a rabbi or a teacher. It's not going right. to happen. There's huge criteria for men. I mean, just not to turn this into a, our, our plight is much worse than your plight. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's a huge responsibility when it comes to male teachers or just teachers in general, you take on a right. huge weight of responsibility and, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, the Bible says you need to have your house in order before you even try to go teach everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So the, so the Bible uh, does disqualify certain people from teaching. I, I just think that the uh, criteria is not based on gender. It, it's based mm. on whether or not the person is qualified to, to be yeah. a teacher. Go figure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no affirmative action in the Bible. <laughs> what you, you've talked a lot about these foundational rules or, or even laws or statutes. And a lot of this comes from what most people understand as the quote unquote Old Testament or the Torah. Talk to me a little bit about where the New Testament, uh, most of our listeners are probably going to be more familiar with the New Testament and, and Jesus in general or Yeshua as some folks might call him. What is your understanding of New Testament understanding towards feminism? And, and you alluded to some of Paul's writings. What are some of the other passages that maybe get misinterpreted or aren't being applied even in modern churches today correctly, where they are limiting women's access to, to certain areas of worship or, or just being in leadership positions? 
Okay. So you are, um, I, th I think I might've missed a little bit of your question. You're asking what are some new Testament passages that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the foundational understanding of feminist arguments stem from a lack of understanding in the old Testament. Right. And they don't necessarily focus too much other than what you've already discussed in, in Paul's writing. What are some of the mm -hmm. other New Testament understandings that are keeping even today's churches in that mindset of, well, women belong here, men belong there, men, women can't do this. Mm -hmm. What are some of those understandings that not only feminists, but even the modern church might be practicing incorrectly? Right. So uh, there are a number of passages uh, that, that even... Um, people within Christianity will interpret to mean that women ought to be, um, and, and Christians, even Christians that hold certain views about whether or not women should be teachers or not, or it, there are a lot of Christians, probably the majority in evangelicalism, that believes that women ought not to hold positions of pastor or uh, you know teacher, they they shouldn't be teachers of of men in the congregations. Um, so I, they wouldn't say that the Bible is unequal. You know, they wouldn't argue that. Um, you know, they would affirm equality between men and women that both have intrinsic value and worth uh, as image bearers for God. Uh, they just interpret the Bible in certain passages, particularly in the New Testament and Paul's letters, as we just covered, in a certain way that uh, women's women are created to serve in a particular function. Um, so I actually take a minority position on that, and uh, as I argued, uh, and as I argue in the book, I believe that women can hold positions of authority um, as pastor and as teacher and, and stuff like that within the Bible. Uh, but I won't get into that. There, there, there are uh, a couple of passages, uh, and there are some very weak arguments that are used. One argument that I've actually heard, and this has been promoted uh, even on some Christian websites, is that Yeshua, Jesus, that all of his disciples, his 12 disciples, were male. And so that, by analogy, means that only men could hold positions of authority in the church. And this is a very weak argument uh, by analogy, because the analogy breaks down in several ways. Number one, that would, based on that analogy, we, we should also say that only Jews ought to have positions of authority in the church, because all of Jesus's 12 disciples are Jewish. Um, so the analogy breaks down. And, and secondly, Jesus did allow for women to be his disciples. There, there weren't any women among his 12 disciples, but women were considered um, his disciples. You have like the story of uh, Mary and Martha, right? And uh, Mary, she sat down at his feet. She was taking the posture of a disciple to, to learn uh, from Jesus. And that is often understood by scholars, and including New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, as she is taking the position of a disciple to learn from a rabbi. And in that practical culture, the reason to do that was to become yourself a rabbi and a teacher. So um, the Bible does seem to indicate or affirm that women can and, and did 
take that position as disciple. Um, you know, there are hints of that in the, in the New Testament. And you also have women that are explicitly called apostles in Romans 16. You have, um, you know, women that are explicitly affirmed as teachers. Um, so, so yeah, um, so you have weak arguments like that. Some of the stronger arguments are based on like passages in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, where Paul says that uh, women ought to be silent in the churches. Mm. Um, and so there is, uh, a, a lot of people will interpret that as saying um, that women, uh, you know, they're not allowed to teach, that women are supposed to just kind of like know their place and sit down and shut up. And, you know, they they can be seen but not heard, right? Um, well, a problem with that passage, and I, I do unpack this more in the book, is that when you read it in context, it simply can't mean what a lot of people say that it means. Because Paul, just a couple chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, affirms that women are, are prophesying within the congregation. So that means that he did affirm women being able to speak and, and prophesy in church. And prophecy, by definition, entails instructing or teaching. So you have that in 1 Corinthians 11, and even within the context of 1 Corinthians 14 itself, there are indications that women were speaking in the congregation. So there are um, exegetical evidences that would indicate that the interpretation adopted by some Christians just cannot be true. And I get into more detail on what that passage actually means in my book. It's about gossip. He's, he's basically talking about gossip. And I can give an example who's been to a mainline church. You'll often hear women in the hallways or in, you know, classrooms say, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to spread rumors or anything, mm-hmm. but I just want to let you know, you need to be praying for such and such because this is what happened in their life. I, I just want to let you know you need to be praying for these people because he's a dirty cheating, you know, SOB or he's drinking and hitting mm-hmm. his wife. You just need to be praying. It's always, let me tell you about these people's dirty laundry while disingenuously sanctifying my gossip. And, right. and, and it is constant in a church. And that is exactly what Paul's talking about. Yeah, yeah, it could be. And if that's the case, then Paul would have that same criticism uh, toward men who would be gossiping. Absolutely. So, so yeah, it, it's it's clear that he's talking about particular women in that context, particular women who were disrupting the service in some way, and so he is targeting them. It's not a general commandment to all women for all time that all women for all time must be silent in the churches. He's addressing a specific situation. And by the way, in the same chapter, Paul tells certain men to be silent. He uses the same exact command be silent in these situations because the whole chapter is dealing with orderly worship services. So if someone else is prophesying, all men be silent, you know, only one prophesies uh, at a time. You know, if, uh, if there is no interpretation of tongues, be silent, speak between God and yourself, you know, don't just blabber out, you know, if there's no interpretation, cause it doesn't edify anyone. So that, that is what Paul, um, so, so when you just read the entire context of the letter, um, it, it's not targeting or, or singling out women in general and giving a general commandment. It's addressing a very specific situation. 
So feminism is, excuse me, feminism is described as the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of sexes, right? So we're looking at a book, the Bible. We're looking at religion as a whole. That once you get into the context of things, it does seem to be very pro-women in terms of what can and cannot happen to them, how they should be treated. We, we can go into the, the slavery aspect of um, ownership and, and how the Bible describes ownership. Why has feminism been turned into, and I think, Quentin, you've alluded to this already with fourth wave and third wave feminism, how has feminism misrepresented what even they're trying to do with bringing equality to women? How, has, how have women in, in the feminist movements subjugated themselves? Okay, so really great question. And uh, I have a whole chapter on this too uh, in the book. You're going to have to get the book. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, man, where to start? Um, modern secular feminism provides no basis for their own values that they claim to uh, advocate for. Modern secular feminism has no objective basis for the, uh, the values that they, that they promote. Um, just to talk about this a little bit, unless you've been living under a rock for the past several years, you've noticed that um, in a lot of ways, we're kind of in the middle of a social revolution right now. You know, you, if just a couple of years ago, you had a famous film producer named Harvey Weinstein who is exposed as a serial sexual abuser. Over 80 women have made allegations against him, including allegations of rape. Um, these allegations have sparked what has come to be called the Me Too movement, right? And, and you know, everyone's been talking about it. And even, you know, we have the same conversation going on right now with Joe Biden. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of women are coming out and, and claiming that they've been mistreated and abused by men. And, and no matter what you think about any particular claims or allegations being made, there is no doubt that women are being oppressed and abused and degraded in our culture. Everywhere from Hollywood to the highest political offices, women are mistreated. Now, there's a couple observations that we can make from this. Number one, despite all of our social progress in the West, despite all of our quote-unquote feminist progressive values in the West, women are still being abused, exploited, and degraded. This is taking place even in places like Hollywood, which is supposedly run by the most enlightened and progressive among us, right? The people that have ditched archaic worldviews like Christianity, and they fully embraced modern feminism. Even in those places, women are still being treated as objects. Women are still being degraded and oppressed and abused. Well, even in Hollywood, so you have some of these very loud very vocal feminists who will then turn around and be in a comic book movie where half their butt is hanging out. Right. And they say, well, it was, you know, it was just for the role. It was being a part of the character. And that's just what was, you know, in the next movie, I'll be more covered up. So how, how do you even, right. how do you even jump through those mental hoops to say that you're fighting for women, you're fighting for their rights, uh -huh. you're fighting for their position in Hollywood, in society, in 
business in politics and then you go and do something like that now i can already hear the scream saying it's not about what she wears a woman should be able to wear what she wants to wear and and not be you know uh, mistreated so how how do you get around that well what i i think um what this tells us what this shows us i mean there is a lot of hypocrisy right um there's a lot of people not in hollywood yeah, a lot of hypocrisy <laughs> and politics and culture. No. There's a lot of hypocrisy. You know, people claiming, oh, equality, right? Um, and, and women are valuable. Women should be treated right. And everyone agrees with that. But what this shows us is that the feminist movement has been utterly ineffective in actually bringing about those changes. Women are still oppressed and mistreated. And the reason is that we are dealing with a moral problem. It's not just a social problem. Mm. When women do it to each other, that's that's the scariest part. That you have these female producers in Hollywood, you have these female politicians who degrade and belittle and speak down to. There was a a really interesting movie about uh, the Fox News scandal that kind of Mm -hmm. alluded to, to some of these women who would go around saying, you know, you just, you just better be quiet and do what's good for you or else we're all in trouble. Right, right. Yeah, the, the whole movement has basically just liberated women to abort babies and to dress mm-hmm. like strippers and to go and make PowerPoints. It, it never <laughs> once celebrated women for what they were in their roles in society. It just literally liberated them to do menial jobs. And while they do it, they can look like mm-hmm. strippers. I mean. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. There, And, you know, I get into that, too, uh, about even even the feminist values now um, are directly contrary to women's health, women's well-being, like abortion, for example. Um, Abortion is the number one killer of women. It's the number one killer of baby girls in the womb. You know, how can you say that you are uh, for women when you are directly advocating for the quote-unquote right to murder them? Nothing says you hate women more than advocating for the right to murder them. And that's exactly what modern feminism, by and large, uh, promotes and fights for. You know, shout your abortion, they say. Um, abortion on demand without apology. So uh, and not only that, but also abortion hurts the women that are getting the abortions. Uh, there have been meta-analysis studies that have shown that women who go through abortions compared to those who... Uh, carry their pregnancies to term, they're far more likely to have suicidal thoughts. They're far more likely to struggle with oppression, uh, depression. So the fact that feminists are fighting for these ideals indicate, I mean, they're fighting for causes that directly harm women. So it's, uh, so not only does the modern secular feminist movement, not only does it not have any moral basis for the claims that they, they promote, the values that they claim they promote, but their own values degrade women. Their own values harm women. The, the mainstream values, uh, that the modern feminist movement promotes. So yeah, to, to get back really quick to the moral basis of um, these claims, you know, the, these claims that we all agree with, that uh, women are equal to men, that women are equal in value to men, that we should treat women right. You know, everyone agrees with that. 
Well, um, what has what the Me Too movement, if you will, what that has exposed is that our society is hungry and it's aching for justice and a moral revolution. It has exposed the fact that everyone agrees female oppression is a moral problem, that men shouldn't abuse women, that's a moral claim, that demanding that men should quote-unquote do better as the Me Too movement demands, that is a moral demand. Even the idea that women ought to be valued and protected from abuse, that is a moral value. It's not just a social value. It's not just a societal value. It's a moral value. But these moral values assume an objective moral standard. If there is no God, if atheism is true, if secular feminism is right, then there's no way to even have that objective moral standard that we all innately affirm that women ought to be treated right. So I'm, I'm going to just add to what you're saying, because uh, the third wave and fourth wave uh, feminism really uh, revolves around rape, right? Mm-hmm. And women's sexual oppression, I want to call it that, but definitely abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually that the moral are embedded in the Me Too movement because a lot of times what you're seeing is, and, and look, I'm not making light of anyone who has a legitimate rape claim, okay? I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm former law enforcement and they are out there. It's very serious. Uh, they should be taken seriously. But a lot of the fourth wave with the Me Too culture is just regret trying to be painted as rape. And, and that's a fact. And, I, and, I, and if you disagree with me, I'm sorry. Does it delegitimizes hundreds of thousands of women who have been legitimately raped and abused and it it's their voice. And, and that's what, that's what these women are basically doing, whether they know that or not. I, I don't know. There's always some sort of, you know, covert. Anytime you have big money involved in things and throwing, throwing it around, you have some sort of covert rationale as to why you're doing it. Uh, right now you see a huge rise in human trafficking and trafficking of children and, and, and women and if, you know, if you basically cheapen their voice, they come out and say, I was raped and trafficked and, and people don't believe them. That's a serious problem. Right. right. Um, so and, and so it kind of makes you wonder where this big money is coming from and what their actual covert agenda could truly be. Mm-hmm. But basically, I think that we're, we're, we have this culture because of the moral and very serious implications of intercourse itself. Right. All intercourse can result in ch- children if you're of a certain age and you're healthy, right? Which most people are. It can result in children. Women are reminded of their fertility every month. Every month, a woman is, is constantly reminded of her fertility and that she can bear children. And that's a real consequence. And when you're young and you're not very mature, I think it's, it's very serious because, you know, you can die in childbirth. I mean, we live in the modern world, but you can still very easily die right? Uh, It it isn't guaranteed that you'll survive that process. And for whatever reason, we have one of the highest infant mortality rates and and maternal mortality rates in the world. And and we're the most advanced nation. It's very strange. People should look into that. So I think it's very real that women have this sense of, oh no, this guy and I are now having sex and I could have children with him and I don't like him and I don't want to have his kids. Now all of a sudden it's gotten real. Like, oh, crap, I don't want to have this guy's kids. I totally regret making this decision at all. I don't even like this guy. I don't want him on top of me or whatever. 
And that's, that's totally legitimate. You have the right to feel that way. You, you have the right to feel repulsed by whoever you're having sex with and have kids with them. That's, that's totally fine. Maybe you should have thought about that before you engaged in that consensually or whether you were inebriated or, or whatever. Maybe you shouldn't have put yourself in that position. And I'm saying that as a father, you know, and, and, and I, I would never want my daughter to put herself in that, that situation. Um, that situation is bad. Maybe, maybe both individuals should have used better judgment. You should know exactly what, first off, if any woman thinks that a man actually wants to be your friend, most men don't want women friends. I'll just be very honest with you. And, and this is a real talk and, and, and you can think I'm a hateful bigot or whatever, but most men don't want women friends. They just don't. Because let's face it, I mean, we, whether you are or not, most men are just going to assume you're kind of dramatic and a headache. We don't want women friends. And if a, if a man is interested in you, generally, it's not for your friendship. It's because he wants something else from you. So if you're being approached by a guy and you end up alone with him, he didn't want to just have some sort of in-depth conversation with you by yourself at the party or whatever. He's he looking wanted to for review something those else. PowerPoints. Yeah, he didn't want to just review the PowerPoints or just talk about the way you're dressed. You know, maybe he does want to talk about the way you're dressed, but it's more about getting it off of you than, than, than you remaining clothed. But, you know, like women should actually probably view men from a predatory nature. I would, I would hope that women start to do that. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think women should view men as, as something that is trying to obtain something from them. And I don't think that's a problem. And if you're, if you're interacting with the right men, if you have a longstanding relationship with that man, if, if he means something to you, if you, if you bring some value, you can move further and, and explore your relationship further. But I think if you just met somebody at a party or, you know, on college campus or whatever, a red flag should go up anytime somebody wants to approach you and get you alone. Like it's not, we're not going to just sit down and talk about an episode of friends or something like that. It's, it's a more serious and you should take it more seriously. That's my rant on that. But uh, I, I think that the, the fourth wave is, is ultimately in, in summary, uh, it's a consequence of women beginning to realize the seriousness of their actions and becoming vocal and, and feeling a regret for engaging in that type of behavior because it is serious and it is regretful. Well, that goes back to having that moral compass, that moral standard of how not only women should behave, but more importantly, if men are truly these predatory, if we are predatory, I'm talking about men as if we're not men on the, on the phone. Right. If, if we're supposed to no, be viewed as predatory creatures, then we as men need some sort of moral compass. We need something to fall back yeah. on and, and say, how should we behave? Like that. Exactly. And, and, and women should be, begin to treat, if you really feel that way and every man wants to take advantage of you, why, why are you even, why is it co-ed parties? Why are you even trying to get with us if all evil? You know, if we're all just trying to take advantage of you, why isn't a man approaching you taken a little more seriously? Why aren't, why aren't girlfriends watching out for their girlfriends? Why are they encouraging their girlfriends to act promiscuously with men they don't know? Because that does happen. I've, it's a symptom of a society that wishes to have their own indiscretions uh, not viewed at all and uh, come without consequence. And it's not just women, it's men. Because raising a kid for the rest of its life because you found some random hookup, that's a serious consequence. It's going to affect you financially. It's going to affect any further relationships you want to have. It's going to affect any children you might want to have in the future with someone else. 
it's right. going to affect your family. And, and it, I, I mean, you, there's infinite amount of consequences and you can't escape them. And, well, and for whatever reason, it's coming from though, that's where, yeah. that's where at least in, in David's argument and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to make your argument for you that the Bible, the Torah, religion, what, whatever it is that you find that centers you in, in some sort of creator, some sort of guiding light, some sort of moral compass, that that is the solution to that mentality, David. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and just to make a couple of comments on that, uh, number one, hookup culture is, I believe, a product of, um, you know, third wave feminism, uh, the late later feminism, which seems to emphasize it born out of the sexual revolution, right? It seemed to emphasize uh, sexual freedom, quote unquote. And, so that, and Gloria Steinem would, yeah, would probably yeah. be the progenitors of that entire movement. People right. should look into the figures. Yeah. So, so, um, so that is, that is an ideal though, in modern feminism, modern secular feminism is that, um, women should be able to sleep around with whomever they want. And I would say that, no, that's actually a degrade that actually degrades women that actually, uh, treats, you know, it, 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 um, who does that benefit? Who does that help? It doesn't help women. It helps men, you know, being able to um, treat women as as objects. You know, you what's funny Jenny? is it is <laughs> that that entire premise and that culture it comes out of an argument that feminists make that men are allowed to sleep with whoever they want and it's encouraged. Well, first off, that was never encouraged. That's Hollywood culture. If you look mm. back in classical literature or classical writings, that type of behavior was seen as very problematic. And it was rejected. And if you were a bigamist or you were an adulterer or a philanderer, men had very serious punishments for that too. It wasn't just a scarlet letter for women. Men were punished very severely for the same behavior. But for whatever reason, secular culture and Hollywood culture promoted that as a virtue. Like this is the symbol of man's virility or whatever. No longer is it a symbol of men's virility to have many children and to be a very prosperous family. No, it's just he has an apartment for his mistress and he goes around and sleeps with a lot of women. That's false too. And men weren't claiming or men weren't demanding that culture being uh, promoted by Hollywood either. That's just something that came out because it was shocking and it added shock value and increased ratings. But men weren't demanding that to be portrayed in a positive light. And that's a a fabrication whole cloth. Yeah. And and, I mean, exactly. Uh, Men ought to protect women. Men ought to cherish women. Men ought to uh, treat women with dignity and respect. And um, and not use them as objects. So everyone agrees with that, and and I think that that is um, you know that's what has been exposed. To go back to what I was talking about earlier, that's really what has been exposed by the Me Too movement and things like that. Is that um, there is an objective moral standard, you know, that these values are true, and that these values are directly contradicted by the values of modern secular feminism. Think about it this way. If atheism is true, on what basis do women or men have any objective moral worth at all? If atheism is true, we're merely the accidental byproduct of chance, no different than any other living organism on the speck of dirt we call Earth. We've all evolved from primordial goo, just the same as mosquitoes and rats. So given that premise, 
why should we treat human beings as special? Where do we get these delusions that we have these moral obligations toward one another, that women or people in general ought to be treated with respect, that they have intrinsic dignity? On the atheistic view, humans are literally just animals, and animals have no moral responsibility. Think about it. We don't we don't condemn male dolphins as rapists when they forcibly copulate with female dolphins and slap them around with their tails. You know, we don't condemn them as abusive rapists. Why? Because they're just being animals. So if humans are just animals too, then on what basis can we truly say that men ought to do better? On what basis can we say that women ought to be respected. Without God, on, on the premise of atheism, there is no objective basis for saying so, that, that Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein and all the rest, that what they did was really morally wrong. There's no, those, there's no basis for that. If there is no I, God, I then why? I agree yeah. with what you're saying. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, could count, I could counter what you're saying, but what you're saying from my argument perspective of a moralistic atheism, what, what you're saying is very true. And so I, I'm not going to counter it or counter signal it, but maybe, maybe we can come back to this on a different episode and have a discussion on, yeah. on uh, I would love to do that. We could do that on a different episode, go sure. debate atheism versus, uh, you know, uh, some sort of uh, div- divinity in, in moralism. We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom-designed websites for small to medium-sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one-page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash newnormal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash newnormal and save 20% on your custom website today. Um, but, but what you're saying, I, I would actually agree with, even from an agnostic or atheistic perspective. And, well, and, but there, uh, there is some morality that can be attached to it based on social order and dy- dynamics of power. But Well, well it, I mean, this is backed up even by science. There was a paper written by, in 2002 by two uh, evolutionary sociobiologists, Randy Thornhill and Craig Palmer. The paper was titled, Why Men Rape? And in this paper, they conclude that rape has a quote-unquote evolutionary basis. You know, you were, you, were, you were talking earlier about how men are predators, right? That, so, no, no, uh, what you're saying is true. Yeah, so, so it's, it's uh, not necessarily about control or domination, but a, a sexual impulse within men. Right. Uh, that, that is encoded biologically. Well, rape I'll, I'll rape evolved. This. Yeah, well, uh, real, real quick, just let me make my point. Yeah. Rape, of, rape evolved, uh, they, according to these two uh, evolutionary sociobiologists, rape evolved as a reproductive strategy. So a male who couldn't find a female to sleep with them would basically just force her to. But if the impulse to sexually overpower women, if that's the result of evolution, then within the naturalistic evolutionary worldview, it's not only morally neutral for men to do that, but it's necessary for human survival. Mm. So, you see, so you see where this gets us. Naturalism gives us no intrinsic value. Evolu- uh, just naturalistic evolutionary atheism, <laughs> it gives us no intrinsic value. We're all just animals 
This type of worldview uh, pushed by secular feminists today, it gives us no imperative to protect the vulnerable in society. So, so yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll address a couple of your points. Okay. Um, you're, you're mostly right. Um, but I would say even without, so if you look at dynamics of power between men and women, primordially speaking, women don't have any power, right? And, and I, I'm, I'm saying that it's going to really infuriate a lot of women, but let me explain myself. Um, if you ask every, every rule is generally given based on the exception, uh, women are physically weaker and smaller and more easily abused than men. So, so women have a physical um, deficit when, when dealing with men. And so if you tell a woman you have no power over a man, she says, well, that's not true because I have my ways. I can withhold sex or whatever. I can, I can get my way. Okay, but you're still viewing your power over men through a men's view of yourself. Basically, your power is only how a man objectifies you. So it's still based on male perception. So there is no power, individual power from that perspective. And so women generally say, well, I'll poison this man or whatever if he beats me or whatever. But power itself is either taken or it's transferred. If you have a transfer of power, very rarely is that power fully respected as the person who took that power respects it. It's, it's, it can be very easily abused. So women say, oh, well, I'll poison him if he beats me or whatever. That, I'm not saying you shouldn't, like you shouldn't deal with an abuser. We're talking about hypothetical primordial situations here. Okay, so women are basically taking power through treachery. Treacherous power is generally not respected, right? It would be like if Rasputin or something had gotten power when the Bolshevik Revolution had taken place, the people would be like, no, I don't like this dude. Um, so if you look at the Bible, it talks about how rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And that's in First Samuel. And if you if you think about that, generally what women do when they try to seek an external power over men is they'll either go and if you're talking about from a tribalistic perspective, they'll go tempt another tribe. This problem that she has with males in her tribe, right? Or turn to dark, dark powers, soothsayers, hexes, curse, magic, whatever. Now she's rebelling against the authority of her house she is actually going to have to find some sort of external power she feels has the ability to overthrow this male power. She's going to turn to witchcraft. So women, women generally will obtain power only through the good graces of men. And I know that's extremely controversial and that's going to light somebody's hair on fire, but it's very true. If you look at it, a woman from a naturalistic point of view had no power to create society, men created society in their image and then allowed, this is true, allowed women to participate on it through increasing degrees over time. And so talking about a rapist, a rapist who is trying to pro procreate and move society forward, his is a very negative thing. What was the reason he was unable to find a mate in the first place? He was some sort of defective, whether a mental defective, a physical defective, or something else. There was some reason women didn't find him attractive. It's kind of like this new phenomenon where people are going and adopting children when they are not capable of having children. I'm not saying that's wrong. That's a very good thing for very, for very many people, right? It's a very good thing. But basically, nature selected your genes out of reproduction. 
Like there's something, there was something about your genetics that nature didn't want to continue. And that's a very harsh reality. And, but that is true. There's something, you know, just in, if you were producing children with birth defects so severe, you carry those genes, those killed children will carry those genes if they are allowed to uh, reproduce. So nature is selecting you out. This person, this rapist has the same exact problem. It's, it's not quantified. We don't know. This is a hypothetical issue, but he's not, nature's not wanting him to reproduce. If he goes and violates another female of that tribe, he's interfering with alpha, right? That's many offspring. And he might be older at this point, and his kids might be a fighting age. And even if they're not, they're still dangerous. They'll become dangerous to this alpha. And he has breeding preference over this tribe. And so now you're talking about disrupting social order. The reason we know rapists have been put to death from a very early period. There's, there's evidence of this to suggest this. And it's because it just disrupts social order. Whether you're talking about the dynamics of absolute power and the tribal leader having his breeding preferences, or maybe his daughter or someone he knows, someone who's important to him, their daughter violated, that's going to be taken very seriously. Um, yeah, but, but, none of, but none of that tells us why rape is wrong. None of that uh, explains why well, no, it's wrong. It, it, it 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 doesn't from a moralistic point of view, but if you look at moralism as stemming from potentially, and I'm not saying it does, I'm, this is a hypothetical, uh-huh. moralism st- stemming from a higher understanding or a higher cognitive ability to develop civilization, any external influence on that society or civilization that could weaken it is seen as immoral or unjust or potentially dangerous, and so it's generally crushed. So even outside of uh, of moralism, there are reasons not to engage in these bad behaviors because it can be a large destabilizing factor, especially if whatever you're doing happens to affect someone who is powerful or people who are close to them that are powerful, then you have very much upset the social order. So no, it it excludes morality, but it it doesn't, uh, well, it doesn't really, they're not really mutually exclusive concepts. Um, Because if you look, if, if you look at it from an evolutionary psychological perspective, if you if you basically remove God from any situation, and most most atheists just do not think about this situation this deeply, they they are generally rebellious or uh, any sort of teaching about God because of their own issues with that concept. Right? They generally don't look at it from a from a philosophical standpoint. But that morality would have stemmed from a, a, and this is potentially why you see different cultures have different expressions of deity, is because in their tribe and their particular set of geological and sociological circumstances, morality developed in a different way because the social order was maintained in a different way. So this concept of morality and who became God or what gods were would have evolved out of this understanding and would have been expressed from a different cultural perspective. That's excluding concepts like um, El or El Elyon or, you know, Anu or whatever. Middle East, and then the Tower of Babel and that incidents creating different cultures. We're talking about it. These cultures, you know, pan-creationism where there's people, or pan-evolution where there's just people everywhere and these things are evolving independently. You end up with different cultural expressions. That's probably how a lot of anthropologists would explain. Right. I, I mean, that's, that's all very interesting on, of explaining how things are, but it doesn't get us to where, to how things ought to be. And so what, I, what I'm saying is that the only way to even 
uh, be able to say that women ought to be treated with dignity, that men ought not rape women. The only way we can get there is, uh, is uh, through an objective moral standard. And naturalism doesn't give us that um, uh, natural, naturalism doesn't give us that standard. Right. Even in the animal so, kingdom, though, you see the, the retaliation within lion tribes. If a rogue comes mm -hmm. into the tribe, that there are consequences. So there is some sort of right or wrong associated to that behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you see, in, in, as far as animism, Taoism, Shinto, there are various philosophical orders, even Buddhism, that don't necessarily necessitate incorporation of a divine power, but still have an objective morality. Because I, I, I do feel that morality, I, you know, there, there is something to be said that, that for most people, most people, divinity provides a structure for morality, right? But those are, most people are not the people who construct society. You're talking about your top 1%, not financially back in the day, but intellectually, your top 1%, or your strongest, strongest could, that's not necessarily mutually exclusive. You could have the strongest guy happen to also be the wisest, who construct this concept of morality based on social order. Um, and, I mean, not in the West. In the Western world, uh, it was built on Judeo-Christian values. Well, that's not necessarily true. You have Celtic paganism and Norse paganism, and you had Hellenistic paganism, and they did have a very similar social order. And don't get me wrong, there were some other differences, but you can see those same sacrificial rites and whatever in the, the Levant, too. I mean, there, there's, there's some serious differences in paganism, but the same sacrificial rites... And, and ritual occurred in the Levant as well in the pre-Zedokite uh, past, especially in the Israelites um, and the Canaanites, which are basically like a cousin tribe. But you, you see that in the West. I, I wouldn't say that Western morality stems out of Judeo-Christian principles. As a matter of fact, I, I would say it probably the Augustinian uh, or Emperor Augustus had some serious social reforms that he took, took part in. And you had various social reforms throughout time in the Hellenistic period and, you know, the, the Roman age. But also the Celts had a very different system of morality. Um, and so did the Norse pagans or Anglo-Saxon pagans. I mean, you have this morality. It's, it's a misconception that they were just all a whole bunch of people that were doing orgies and sacrificing children. That's, that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, there, there were morality. You had marriage. You had sanctification of the family children were considered sacred, you know so that's just my point for whatever reason we see this i i, I don't want to call it a myth because there's a great deal of truth to it where judeo-christianity and which is a modern concept in itself but if you look at it from the west the west never knew judaism right the west only ever really knew christianity that our entire concept of morality comes out of a Christian structure. But if you look at the way the early Catholic and Orthodox church were structured, they were very much out of Gnosticism and Roman and Greek paganism to begin with the way they were structured with the Holy mother, basically Christmas replacing Saturnalia and the Bacchanal events. Um, it's basically just a reinterpretation with, with Christ added onto it of these very ancient rites, these pagan rites to begin with. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but even if morality were pre-programmed into us biologically, 
as you you seem to suggest. No, it I would- don't. I don't suggest that. No, I I, I want to make that very clear. I agree with your initial interpretation that people are animals, and that within most people is a very animalistic urge to do what gratifies them, and that would be your reptilian brain. Your 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 that that of the brain that is you know fornicate feed fight so, flight you know that so urge for most so, people and then you have a higher so you reject morality so, so no. you reject objective morality no no what i'm saying is is objective morality i believe probably stems from a greater societal order that evolved through a it's kind of like the so it's pre uh, so it's pre-programmed of, into us biologically if no. if there's nothing if there's nothing um outside of the the culture if there's no transcendent um you know being that well, what was i mean if you look at the oldest the oldest text the oldest text that we have written down for an objective morality were potentially philosophical writings they weren't even they weren't even deistic writings right and then you have some that emerged later from sumer and babylon and greece yeah very much later comes the bible um, but I mean, the, the Bible is basically predated by, you know, Hellenistic, uh, the Hellenistic pantheon by like a thousand years or more. Um, not, I'm not making a case for paganism. What I'm saying is that culture and morality stem from a desire of higher intellectual beings, because you have to realize that if this is an evolutionary race, Everyone in the world is the most evolved to their well, environment. Well, well, that that so proves they are my the most adapted yeah. and smartest and capable people of their region. Okay, and so, so their social order revolves around facilitating that reproduction. So, and so it's then not you're, you're making impulses. So then you're making my point that there is yeah. an object, there is an objective morality. Whether I, yeah, it, and I agree with you. Yeah. Okay, so whether it was pre-programmed into us bio, biologically or what, there is an objective morality. I completely agree, yes. I would, I would say that that cannot exist if atheism is true. If atheism is true, there can be no objective morality. I don't want to go any further. I mean, we, okay. we should have this conversation another day. I, I've like <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, but this is more sure. about feminism. And I, I, I think maybe what we should do is cut a lot of this conversation out that we just had and, and like add it on to what we're going to talk about next time. No, I think it's fine to, because it, it brings us around really, to this. It, it brings us around to the same conversation because what we're talking about is the fact that feminism needs this sort of morale, uh, this morality yeah. to, to bring them back into the fold of something better than what they currently have. So I think if, if David, if you can expand just kind of the, the conclusion of, of what you're, you're getting to in, in your book is, is the final answer to, according to your, your research and, and your, your point of view, the final answer yeah. is to seek out a higher power through either the Bible. And, and again, we're not going to necessarily say that that's for everyone, but at the same time, mm-hmm. if we are coming from this, from a point of view that the Bible holds true and it is, is it is a true book. Um, Obviously, Quentin, you you have a different perspective on that, but we're we're here to talk about uh, your perspective on that and then why the. Bible I want to say not necessarily. I don't necessarily. I I generally stay objective and play devil's advocate. But yeah, no, no problem. Sure. No problem. Uh, so so my my whole point is that you know going off of this paper uh, by these two so, uh, evolutionary sociobiologists, if the impulse to sexually overpower women. If that is the result of evolution, then within the purely naturalistic worldview, without God, 
it's not only morally neutral, but necessary for human survival. And, and I know that uh, you would disagree with that, but I believe that uh, if atheism is true, objective morality cannot exist. And, and I could give an argument on that. So uh, what, what I, I was basically saying was that that individual, the, so there's individual prerogatives and there's, you know, species prerogatives. What's good for the species probably is n not at all good for the species because there's some reason that person has been selected out of the reproduction. Okay, that, that's fine, but, but that still doesn't get, to us, get us to ought and ought not. That still wouldn't get us to um, whether something is morally true or morally not. It just explains what is. It doesn't explain uh, what ought to be. So what I'm saying yeah, is I would that, agree that you'd have to have yeah. a higher philosophy for that for sure. Right. So so naturalism gives humans no intrinsic value. That's what that's my argument. Pure naturalism gives humans no intrinsic value because on naturalism we're all just animals. You know, that's the reason we don't condemn male dolphins as rapists. I agree with all of that wholeheartedly. Right. So yeah. so the naturalist so if we don't have any intrinsic value the naturalistic worldview also gives us no moral imperative to protect the vulnerable in society. There's no moral imperative to do that. So what is the secular feminist solution to the problem of female oppression? Because we all agree that women are being oppressed even today. Many women are. You have sexual slavery. You have women that are being abused in places like Hollywood and, and politics and, and, and in, our, in our culture today. What is the solution to the problem? Secular feminism cannot give us a solution. It cannot give us a moral imperative uh, to protect the vulnerable in our society. Th this is what Thornhill and Palmer uh, explain in their paper. They, they First, they don't explain why, according to their worldview, that behavior such as rape is wrong, because there's no moral basis for that on naturalism. They don't explain how concepts like right and wrong can even exist, according to their worldview. Nevertheless, the proposed solution that they offer is, quote, the, the program should stress that a man's evolved sexual desires offer him no excuse whatsoever for raping a woman, and that if he understands and resists those desires, he may be able to prevent their manifestation in sexually coercive behavior. So in other words, if men understand why their brains evolved to be what they are, they might be able to stop themselves from raping. That's what these two evolutionary sociobiologists suggest. In other words, you are an animal. And if you understand that you are an animal, maybe you'll learn to act not like an animal. That's the solution, which is really That's a non- way too much credit. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really we a non-solution. We all need shot callers. Yep. Yeah, no, that, so, I agree. That's, that's giving people way too much credit, and that's, so, that's not going to happen. Yeah, so, so inform, inform men that they are purposeless bags of meat, and if they know that, maybe they'll be able to control themselves just because. That's what, I, that's, I that's that's what, that's what secular, atheistic feminism gives us. I, I think that's true to, a, to a, a small set of individuals who might have a higher intellect and might already be pre-inclined to atheism, but the average person needs an objective morality and needs a system of it. They, they will not be able to rationalize that. Nor, right. nor I do I think that's yeah. very healthy. I think that could lead down a, a serious path of nihilism where nothing really matters because I'm just an animal right. floating on right. a rock and, and I believe space. 
Yeah, and that goes to show um, that objective morality is true because we can all uh, determine by our experience that it's true. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's um, so objective morality is true, uh, but the logical, but it can't be true. My argument is that it can't be true on the naturalistic worldview. I say, I think that the logical conclusion of naturalism is nihilism. There is yes. no, there is no objective basis for female dignity and moral behavior on the naturalistic worldview. Without God, all we're left with is naturalism, and naturalism gives us no real solutions. So, on that basis, secular feminism doesn't work. That's why secular feminism hasn't worked. That's why even today, in the most progressive segments of our society that have fully embraced secular feminism and have ditched Christianity, even in those segments of society, uh, women are still being degraded and oppressed and devalued. So my thesis in my book that I defend is that the answer to this problem is not more secular feminism. The answer to the problem of female oppression is biblical Christianity. And we know that biblical Christianity changes the world. We know that biblical Christianity elevates the status of women because it already has. Historically, we got first wave. It was Puritans, right? It was, it was, there would be no first wave feminism whatsoever had you not mm -hmm. had the Puritanical experiment in the Northeast. Oh, it, even, it would not have yeah. occurred. Yeah, and even even before that, no, that's, Christ, that's Christians. Yeah, Christians were the first. Uh, were, they passed the first laws against sexual slavery. Yeah, when Christian when Christians got enough power within uh, government in the early ages of Christianity, they were the first ones to outlaw sexual slavery. So um, that's elevating the the status of women, affirming their value um, as creatures made in the image of God. And, and this is, so what I'm offering my, my friends, what I'm offering um, people who do love women, who want to um, affirm their equality with men, who want to affirm value, who want to affirm these values that women ought to be protected and treated with dignity, what I'm offering you is a consistent worldview for those values that you hold so dear. That worldview uh, is articulated within the Bible itself. The, the very, ironically, the very uh, text that feminists uh, deride as, as oppressive toward women, these are the very, this is the very source from which uh, female dignity and value is derived. It's within a, a Christian worldview in accordance with scripture. We see this in Genesis 1.27. What does it say? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is at the very beginning of creation. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that God created both men and women in his image. And being created in God's image, it not only bestows upon humans intrinsic value and worth, but it elects them to, uh, to represent God's purposes and will on earth. So the biblical worldview gives women and men intrinsic value and worth and purpose. We can't get that from secular feminism. As we've already discussed, secular feminism based on naturalism 
it gives us no basis for affirming objective morality. It gives us no basis for affirming the dignity of women. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it be that fair to say, more. wouldn't it be fair to say that a lot of mischaracterization has been applied to not only the Bible, but God himself and, and the characteristics mm-hmm. that God has, has put down on paper for us to explore it is the privilege of kings to explore God's mm-hmm. character. And mm-hmm. so much misrepresentation has happened in the church where you have young women and even young boys who are either exploited or you have young women who are uh, demonized for making poor choices. They're, they're told to come to the front of the, of the altar and confess their sins in this very embarrassing situation. And that's the only way that they can make it right for the congregation. And so you have this, this very negative worldview of modern Christianity and the Bible as a whole, because we as Christians, speaking for myself and, and David, I think you would agree, that we have not represented the characteristics of the Bible and the characteristics of the creator of the Bible. And that in and of itself has been a detriment to even sharing this sort of message. Right. We, we've, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have uh, presented a distorted version of what Christianity actually is. And uh, that is what, uh, as I said at the beginning, that's what a lot of people are reacting to, I think is uh, they're reacting to this distorted version of Christianity. And, and so it's a lot of people are coming at this from a very skewed perspective. And um, what I hope to do, uh, what, what I try to do in the book is correct that perspective. What I want to do is offer an accurate biblical representation of what Christianity is and what I believe the Bible teaches, which is that men and women are equal in value and dignity and purpose that uh, they're both created in the image of God, that, um, you know, they, they have intrinsic value and purpose. And, and so that's, David, that's the message. Yeah. But David, you're a man. Why should I listen to you? Why didn't your wife oh, yeah, write this that's book? Right. <laughs> Why didn't your wife yeah, write well, this book? <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, she, she did, she did help me. She reviewed it and edited it. But, but uh, yeah, I, it's actually a funny story. Um, my, I was playing around, um, with subtitles. I was trying to come up with a subtitle. The, sub, the book is called, Is God a Misogynist? And the subtitle is Understanding the Bible's Difficult Passages Concerning Women. Originally, when I was playing around with a, a subtitle, I was thinking of something like, man, what if I did mansplaining the Bible to feminists or something like that? <laughs> I wanted to but, say something to <laughs> affirm what you were saying, um, it, it, because I, I do agree that um, all of feminism in, in modernity has, and I'm talking about within the last hundred years, come from a perspective of cultural Marxism and systematic atheism, um, and it's secular in nature. And if that is true, and they want to come at it from an atheistic evolutionary perspective, if that's what they're pushing, and we do go back to a might makes right civilization, whether or not they're mistreated or not it is irrelevant. They won't have any power. That will be stripped from them entirely they will not have a voice whether they're raped or abused you know or, or not uh th- there will be no power for them and, and very right. and, and and what you're saying about christianity offering this as a solution is true because even in the past there were very few pagan sects anywhere in the world that affirmed women's rights very few 
and you're not going to find them probably today. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it just just by the nature of their argument itself, you would think that they would want to steer away from that. And and that's it's very interesting and telling to me that feminism didn't get that original perspective uh, in the late 1800s with basically some progressive um, evolutionary thinkers. They actually didn't treat women well at all. Um, they, they were basically seen by this group of scientists or, or individuals as inferior by nature itself, lacking power. And so the, I, I just wanted to give you credit there and affirm what you were saying, that w- without this worldview and without it uh, having originated in the West the way it did, th- they wouldn't be able to have these arguments in the first place. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Um, I, I think it's important, um, you know, because I, if we care about this issue, if we care about women's rights, you know, one, one of the one of the feminist authors I quoted at the very beginning uh, of our talk here, and, and I quote her in my book as well, is that she says the only way to support women's rights is to abandon religion. You know, it, it's to get mm. rid of all religion. Uh, I'm basically making the the opposite case. I think the only way to support women's rights is to abandon naturalism. It's to abandon uh, secular feminism and to affirm uh, the biblical Christian worldview. I, I think that's the only way we can have a consistent worldview that honors women and treats them with respect. Mm. David, if you weren't advertising a book, but you had access to a billboard, what would be your message on that billboard? Oh, um, if I, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, if I had access to a billboard and if I didn't have a book. Or, or if you weren't necessarily saying, go buy my book, what would be the message that you would want get, to get people okay. interested in, in getting this, this book, this information? Um, Jesus loves women. I guess. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I would say something like, do you support women's rights? Become a Christian. Mm. Maybe maybe that'll be, uh, maybe that would be what I put on there. Is God a misogynist understanding the Bible's difficult passages concerning women? It's a new book by David Wilbur. You can go get it now on Amazon. You can check it out on his website, isgodamisogynist.com. And if you want to learn more about Mr. David Wilbur, you can go to David Wilbur. That's W-I-L-B-E-R dot M-E. I got, I got tripped up on that when I was promoting you when you were coming <laughs> on the show. But hey, you can go over there, davidwilbur.me, to learn more about David, his speaking engagements, anywhere he might be teaching online. And you can also check out 119 Ministries. That's also where he has a teaching and uh, support function there. David, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to acknowledge your uh, intellectual arguments that you were able to make today and, and giving us uh, a little bit of your perspective on how feminism is hurting women more than it is helping women. So thank you so much for coming on the show. We would love to have you back on. I know Quentin, we can uh, we can definitely schedule another round of uh, yeah. good intellectual. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me me too. Thank you guys so much. It was a blast. <laughs> thank you again, David. As always, stay safe and welcome to the new normal. <laughs> <laughs>